for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Take your Bible this morning and open to Deuteronomy. We'll be beginning in chapter 17. We're in a series entitled Shaped for Glory Through Mission. And we're laboring for, uh, for ourselves to live out a wholehearted allegiance through a whole life obedience. That's, a, that's our desire. And so we, in this part of this series, we're talking about different topics that we are confronted with in the culture in which we live. And so we've looked at a number of different topics, some more, uh, uh, shall we say, personally uh, uh, leveled, and others more big picture, like we talked about justice a couple of weeks ago. Well, today we're going to talk about spiritual leadership, spiritual leadership and what that means. Let, Let me begin by asking a question, if you don't mind. Who first comes to your mind when I say spiritual leadership? What's one of the names or in fact, you don't have to answer that. That's kind of a rhetorical question. I want you to answer it, just not out loud, okay? Who comes to mind when you think about spiritual leadership? For many, the names that the world offers, because there's a diversity of those who label themselves spiritual leaders in the world. One such spiritual leader would be, uh, from time gone by, Gandhi. We see a lot of famous quotes from Gandhi and, and, and a lot of... Uh, wisdom that he purported. Another one would be Confucius. I don't know about you, but I just can't pass up that name. It's a fun name, right? So if you ask somebody, who's your spiritual leader? And they say Confucius, it just feels like that's wrong. You know what I'm saying? So you're confused, right? Uh, You know, it just, maybe that's just my bad uh, humor, you know. But there there are innumerable people Uh, The Dalai Lama is one who is very famous, and you often see him in the news, and he goes about and and he he shares these deep insights and high and lofty truths, so to speak, or wisdom by which people should live their life. Another one is Deepak Chopra is known and very famous for his spiritual insight, writes many books and, and states many supposedly deep spiritual truths for people. Oprah is a spiritual leader for many people. And when she had her regular show, or now I guess an article through her uh, uh, marketing uh, behemoth that she has, people look to her for spiritual guidance. You know, and I, I can stand up here and talk about how wrong one or the other, compare them all day long, but. But I don't want to just do that today because here's what I want to say. There are many kind of spiritual leaders that are found in the world. And the problem is not that they add nothing to your life. I've seen Gandhi quotes. I've seen some of the things that the Dalai Lama has said. And I don't disagree with them all the time. But spiritual leadership that is rooted in this world is not wrong because everything they say is wrong. It's wrong because everything that they offer to you and all of them cumulatively together that they offer to you will never be enough. Will never satisfy the longing of your soul. Truth of the matter is it will never satisfy the questions of your spirit. Maybe you've heard the phrase, I'm spiritual just not religious. That's become a real catchphrase in our world today, right? Well, God has a plan for spiritual leadership. And here's what I want to give you the big picture. I'm going to tell you the end goal before we get there today. That Jesus is the true spiritual leader that brings us perfectly into relationship with God. And I'm not presenting Jesus today to simply try and discredit all of the others. But what I will say to you today, and what I will challenge you on today is this. It will be either all of them and no Jesus, 
are all Jesus and none other. You will not have it both ways. Where you put Jesus with others, what you get is not Jesus. And where you add others to Jesus, because maybe he's not enough, what you've got still is not Jesus. Jesus is the true spiritual leader that perfectly brings us into relationship with God. But there is a leadership that God has ordained and designed for your life to grow you and to mature you spiritually. And so I want us to look at three roles today that demonstrate God's design to lead His people. Three roles that we'll begin to consider from Deuteronomy today. In chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, I'm not going to read the entirety of the passages simply for the sake of time, but enough for us to get the idea of what Moses is saying to us here. The first role that I want you to see this morning is that God gives us the role of king through which he will rule his people. Look with me at Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord is, your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Stop there with me. Let's look at this first role that God ordains as a spiritual leader to rule his people. He sets forth the role of king. And, And what Moses does is he says this. He does not command that they must elect a king. But he says, you will look around at the nations that surround you. And you will say, they have a king. We want a king. We want to appoint a king. And if you do your history research in the Bibles, you will find that's exactly how a king came about. And so God said, it is allowable for you to appoint this king. And the king's role among the people would be to represent God's active ruling of his people. Let's look at how the role of king would be carried out. First of all, there's two qualifiers that he presents. And the first qualifier is this, that this will be a king that you will elect, but that God will choose. God will choose the person who will become your king. He says this, he will, you will appoint as king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Listen, friends, I want you to know this. There's never been a time that God hasn't actively ruled his people. And that is true today as much as it has ever been true. And we see that from the beginning. You see, king is is not a picture so much of God's divine function of ruling among the people. Actually, two weeks ago when we talked about justice and we looked at how God established judges to proclaim righteousness among the people, that's actually a better picture of God's divine deity acting among his people than the role of king. One commentator says, the way of the king in Deuteronomy is not a reflection of the deity, but a model of the true Israelite. A model of the true Israelite. And so the king in his role would become for the people a model for what it looks like to live fully under the rule of God in the world. But there was a second qualifier that he gave. Not only would would God uh, appoint and choose this person, but also it would be a person who would come from among your brothers. This person would be one from among you who would understand the ways of God. A person that would lead the people in God's ways and would not stray after other gods. And so God ordained the king to provide a model for his people to lead them in what it meant to live as God's people. That was the purpose of this role of king. We see this in the, New, in the Old Testament, excuse me, uh, in the history books as God chooses kings for his people. God chooses David as king. And what we learn in 1 Samuel 13 and 16 is this, is that the Lord was searching for a man after his own heart. That's what God tells Samuel. Because Samuel comes to the house of Jesse 
And he sees Jesse's oldest son and he goes, dude, he's big, he's bad, he's beautiful, he's king. And God says, no, he's not. No, he's not. And one by one, he went through the big, the baddest, and the most beautiful sons of Jesse. And each one, God said, that's not him. Nothing against him, but that's not him. That's not him. And Samuel got through them all. And at first they said, there are no other sons, because they'd forgotten about the last one. And he said, are you sure that you don't have any other sons? And he said, well, we've got one that's a shepherd out in the field with the sheep. Because you see, the role of shepherd in that day and time was the lowest role that any person could fulfill. If you were a shepherd, you were lower than dirt in the eyes of most people. And so he said, go get him. We at least need to look at this probably impossible that God would use him. And he brings him in. And in that moment, Samuel said, that's him. That's him. And God explains to Samuel this way. He says, man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. And God was looking for a man after his own heart when he chose David to be the king. And so we see these two qualifiers that God provides. But we also see, continuing in the verses, three prohibitions for the king. First of all, he says this, that the king should not acquire many horses for himself or cause people to return to Egypt. You see, Egypt represented more than just geography in that time. Of course, Egypt was where they were enslaved before they had come out 38, 39 years prior to the day in which they were living. But more importantly, Egypt was the world superpower at the time. And the horses represented the power of their army and the security of their nation. It represented the wealth. It also represented the very things that drown in the sea, right? But, you know, they had forgotten that conveniently. And so when he said the king is not to acquire many horses for himself or cause people to return to Egypt, he's simply saying that you can't trust in the power of the world. Worldly power, worldly might, worldly domination is not the way that God will rule His people. God directs His people to look only to Him for their power and for their security, not to the world. The second prohibition that He gives is that, that the king is not to acquire many wives for himself because his heart may turn away from God. Now, He's speaking in political directives here. He's not just talking against polygamy which that will come later, it's definitively not something that honored God throughout the Scriptures. But the reason he puts this prohibition in here is because he's confronting a very popular practice of the day where the kings would marry the, the, the children of other kings and in so doing would make an alliance with that nation. It wasn't, oh, our son and daughter just happened to fall in love. Well, let's be friends. No, rather they would look to the strong nations and go, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you've got, if you've got a child, I'll give you my child, let's form an alliance because you can bring economic peace and security and power to us. And so it wasn't so much about the marriage as much as it was the political agreement. And God said, you shouldn't do that, you can't do that. See, God directs His people that the only, there's only one relationship that the Israelites obedience or should obey Him in that would bring full provision for them. And that was the relationship of them to him. The third pro, uh, prohibition that he offers is this, that the king should not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. You see, the position of king was not to be used for personal gain. Ha! Huh. What? Maybe somebody ought to write that in Washington or something. The position... A political power was not to be used for personal gain, but rather to serve the good of the people that they served. There's one clue that really provides insight into these prohibitions as a qualifier for why God was telling them these three prohibitions needed to stand. And it's the simple phrase, for himself. You see, in each one... The king would rule, would send them back to Egypt to acquire greater horses for himself. He would try to acquire uh, uh, marriages that would create allies for himself to secure his own kingdom. He would try to gain silver and gold that would create wealth for himself. 
not for the people. And so we see through this prohibition that God was saying, don't use the position or the role of king to profit. It is a spiritual leader, not just a political position. And that's what God was saying to him. King Solomon provides a very adept illustration for us in this because King Solomon took the throne after his father David had extended the borders to their greatest extent in the history of Israel. It tells us that Solomon gained wealth more than any other king. As a matter of fact, they've tried to put dollar figures on the wealth of Solomon. And even in today's terms of economy, it's still mind-boggling what he was really worth. His wisdom exceeded all. They enjoyed peace in the whole kingdom of Israel in a way that was unheard of before. They say that foreign rulers would travel great distances and pay any amount of money just to sit and listen to Solomon speak. His wisdom was so profound. Do you know how Solomon's kingship was marked at the end? Had over 750 wives. And it tells us, not that he was condemned for being the richest. Not that he was condemned for being the wisest. But God said he was not wholly true to the Lord. Because his wives led his heart astray. He had trusted in other kingdoms more than he trusted in God. And so we see that anything, friends, anything and anyone that you love more than God will always create a false idol that you worship above God. God gave these prohibitions to love the people. And finally, we see that Moses in verses 16 through 20, excuse me, 18 through 20, he provides the one purpose for the king. Look at what he says in these verses. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. You see, the role of king in Israel was not just to make big decisions. It was to know the law of God so well that you lived under it so faithfully that you became a model for all the people to demonstrate for them how good God was in His rule. That was the role of king. He was a spiritual leader among the people. The king held a distinctively spiritual role in leadership to model for the people how to love and how to follow God and how to enjoy the blessing of longevity in His kingdom. King Josiah provides a very adept illustration of this. After many kings had perverted the throne in Israel, Josiah ascends to the throne at eight years of age, rules for 31 years. And at the age of 15, after seven or eight years of of studying the law that the priest provided for him and writing his own copy and just memorizing it and absorbing it and, hear me, reading the law, but more importantly, allowing the law to read him because that's what's important about reading the Word of God, right? Letting it read you. He said this, We're a people who need God. And he called on revival in the land. And King Josiah, at the age of 15, called God's people to revival. And it became the distinguishing characteristic of his kingship. Here's what 2 Kings 22 and 2 says about King Josiah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. He may not have been the richest king. He may not have been the wisest king. He may not have been the most powerful king or the greatest warrior. But he did all that was right in the eyes of the Lord. And friends, that was the role of king in Israel. God ordained the role of king to establish the way through which he would rule 
his people and model how to know and how to follow God's law. Sadly, most of the kings were not like Josiah. Most of them wreaked havoc, not only in their own life, but in the whole kingdom because of their own sin. David is an illustration of this. You know the story. He saw Bathsheba. He wanted her. He had her come in. He took her for his own. And she became pregnant. When she became pregnant, he tried to hide and cover up his sin by sending her husband, who was one of his main generals of his army, obviously a close personal friend. He didn't want him to find out, so he had him sent to the front line where there would be no way he would survive had the rest of the army pulled back so he would surely be slaughtered. And that's what happened. David had fooled the entire nation until God's prophet came to him and said, You are the man, and it broke him. It broke him. See, that's why David's considered great. Because he knew he wasn't the king. He was just demonstrating what it meant to live under the king's rule. Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10, here's what David says about the true king. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King, capital K, of glory might come in. Who is the King of glory? He didn't say David is his name. He said the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts is the King of glory. That's what God saw in David's heart. That's what God put in David's heart. And even though David was an imperfect man, he served as a faithful king because of what God was doing in his heart. The second role of spiritual leadership that we see begins in the first chapter of uh, begins in the first verse of chapter 18, and it is the role of priest. And it is through the role of priest which God relates in worship. To his people. Go with me there to verse 1. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Let's stop there. This second role of spiritual leadership is established by Moses as the leaders of the priest. Now, the priests were already active among the people. They were already divided into their tribes. But as they were going into the promised land, the last thing Moses would do would be to divide the territories of the land and assign it to the 12 different tribes. But the tribe of Levi would not receive an inheritance of the land. Rather, they were set apart in a special relationship with God. And when the people would come to the place that God had chosen to worship, as we saw in Deuteronomy 12, they would bring their tithes and their first fruits offering. And when they made those offerings to the Lord, the Levites would receive those offerings and they would be used to provide for the Levite people. And so the offerings that were made to God at the temple would be used to provide for the ongoing necessities of life For the Levites who took care of the temple, who took care of the people, who related to the people to show them how to relate to God. You see, when you came into the temple, a priest would meet you and the father would bring their sacrificial animals and the priest would take them over to the altar and the priest would instruct and help the father know how to slaughter the animal so that each part of the animal could be used in the sacrifice. And the priest priest would coach the father how to instruct the family in the theology of what was taking place and how that sacrifice was not eternal or forever, but rather it was symbolic of what God would do for his people in providing a perfect sacrifice. And so the priest led by ministering in the Lord's name among the people. And the Israelites' provision for the Levites And the way that the Israelites gave to the temple for the provision of the Levites was to be a reflection of the way that they had been treated by the Lord. So priests modeled among the Israelites absolute dependence and the enjoyment of God's provisions 
for all to see. And the people depended upon the priest in order to intercede before God on their behalf. And so God established the role of priest to relate to his people in worship. But of course, the priests were far from perfect too, we see throughout. Let's go, hmm, let's start with the first one. Anybody remember the name of Aaron? And what was Aaron's first great claim to glory? Moses went up on the mountain and he was receiving the Ten Commandments from God himself. And Aaron's down in front of the people going, you people are driving me crazy. Let's do something here to satisfy you. Give me all your gold and silver. And they melted it into an calf idol. Moses comes down and he goes, great, Aaron, great. We need to be together, and this is what you're doing. Hey, from the very first one, Aaron shows us the priests were imperfect, woefully, horribly imperfect people, right? But the priests also served in other functions that show us that they weren't perfect. As a matter of fact, in the Gospels, when it tells us that Jesus came into the temple and he began to turn over the tables and throw their money and to turn them out, why was he doing that? Because he was opposing the priests and how they had profaned the house of God for personal profit. You see, the high priest like Caiaphas, like Ananias, who, who had taken the position of priest and were using spiritual authority to manipulate people for personal gain, what they would do is this. Remember how earlier in Deuteronomy the law told us that if you live too far from the place that God has chosen for him to be worshipped, and it's too much trouble for you to try to travel with all of your livestock and your family and all of your belongings, then where you live, sell your offerings, sell the firstborn of your livestock, sell the birds that you would bring for the offering, sell the first fruits of your harvest, and then bring that money, come to the temple area, and buy locally the best you can afford to buy, and and then you can bring that and offer that as a sacrifice for you and for your family. Well, Caiaphas and Ananias and them as chief priests, the main, the highest authority of the religious leaders, here's what they were doing in the temple the day Jesus cleaned house. You see, they made the people bring in their offerings, and then they looked at them and went, hmm. And if the high priest didn't say okay to your sacrifice, you couldn't offer that sacrifice to God. They created themselves as a barrier to God. And the people would bring in the best they could afford, which God had instructed them in the law to do. And they would go, not in this house. That's not good enough. You go sell that and we'll sell you one that they can use. And so they would take a beautiful little four-legged lamb out. And when they brought the money that they had received for it, Caiaphas would turn around and sell them a three-legged goat. And you can only imagine people who, who had raised a beautiful, a beautiful lamb and wanted to bring their best to God. And when they got there, all the priests could do would be to pervert their offering, demand their money. But what are we to do? For God relates to us through you. And Jesus came in. And he cleaned house. He wiped them out. Rightfully so. He said, not in this house. Not in my father's house. This is a house of relationship. This is a house of prayer. And that's what this will be. Need we even say it was the chief priests whose voice stirred up the crowds that cried, crucify him, crucify him. What a perversion of the role of spiritual leader that God had established by His design. The priests were far from perfect. But God established that role because He wanted a distinctive relationship with His people. If you look in the second half of chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, You'll find some abominable practice that God says, do not practice these ways. And here's what it will talk about. God was opposing the ways of the Canaanites 
who were probably the most sexually explicit idolaters in all of history. Every religious symbol for the Canaanites represented some sex organ of the human body. And the practice of religion, I'm not going to even talk about it. This is what they called God. And those who really wanted to sacrifice to God would bring their own children and put their own children on the altar and brutally murder their children for the convenience and the comfort of themselves to try and get their own pleasure from God. Sound like anything that we know today? There's nothing new under the sun, friends. Idolatry has existed since people have existed. Because sin perverts the heart. And God says, I'll not be worshipped as all the other gods are worshipped. I am not one among many. I am the one and only. The necromancing, the divinations to talk to the spirits of the dead, you know what that is? That's dancing with the devil. That's dancing with it. Even in our day and time today. God says you don't need them. Don't listen to them. They don't speak. But they will deceive. And so he says I'll not be worshipped as the other gods, little g, are worshipped. Spiritual leaders, the priests, Lead God's people to worship Him in righteousness and holiness, not just in the ways that are culturally relevant or acceptable or present. So God ordained the role of priest to establish the way through which His people would relate to Him in worship. The third role is the role of prophet. And the prophet was the role through which God speaks righteousness to his people. Look at verse 15 and following of chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This is Moses speaking. And so Moses tells them that the Lord will raise up a prophet for you, much like me, that will fulfill this kind of role. And he ordains this third role as the prophet. So prophet originally developed, friend, from the people's experience with God. Remember when they were at the mountain and God passed by and such fear struck the people that they all with one accord, in other words, they were all in agreement. And you have no idea how hard that can be to get two people to agree on something, let alone two million people to agree on something. But here's what they agreed on. Don't ever do that again, God. Don't ever do that again. It scared them to death. And they ask of God, raise up someone from among us who will go before you for us. Hence the reason Moses was chosen to become the first prophet and to represent God's people. And so Moses said, God will raise someone up from among you like me. Not because Moses was the perfect example, need I remind you of Moses' imperfection, but rather to serve in a similar way. Role. Moses became the voice of God for his people. God raised up the prophet from among the people and put words in his mouth to speak what God commands, not what the prophet preferred. God leads his people by his word spoken and he orients his people to follow him by listening to his word. L let me just back up. And if you weren't with us when this series began back in the fall, you're going to learn something about the book of Deuteronomy. But at the very beginning, what distinguishes God from all of the other false gods? One thing, he speaks. He speaks. So when God is teaching the people not only how to relate to Him, how to enjoy Him, but how to understand Him, He simply says what? Listen, I'll talk to you. I will talk to you. The other gods will not speak because they cannot speak. And so God leads His people by His word that is spoken, and He orients His people to follow Him by listening to His word. He goes on to warn against false prophets here. And he says there's a test that you can give them. If the words of the prophets come to fruition, if they come true, that's a true prophet. If they don't come true, that's a false 
prophet. And so he placed upon the people the responsibility to listen and identify God's word. You're not just passive bystanders, friends. God has a responsibility on you to make sure that what comes out of this pulpit and even this place, this mouth, and the mouth of any that stand up here, you are responsible to know that it aligns with God's word and to speak up if it doesn't. That's not just my responsibility as a Christian. That's the responsibility of all of God's people. And God ordained that and established that all the way back here. All the way back here. But we see that the prophets weren't perfect men either, right? Jonah, right? The one that God did so much to and through, and yet Jonah hated God for it. Right? God, God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh, and Jonah said no, and he went the opposite direction. And God said, that's fine, i got a fish down there that will give you a ride. And he did. And he spit him up on the land when Jonah repented. And Jonah went to Nineveh. And he said, okay, I, I got a word from God for you. And what did he do? He gave him a word from God. He said, repent, or in three days, God's going to rain down burning sulfur on you. I'm like, wow, Jonah, good hope there, man. Good job. And what happened? The whole city turned from their sin and trusted God. There is no account, no account of that kind of revival with preaching ever in the history. And what does Jonah do? He gets mad at God. I knew you were going to do that. I knew it. I knew if I said anything, you were going to save them all, God. And that's what you did. And so he goes out, sits under a bush, and he goes, kill me. Kill me now because I'm just miserable and I'm mad at you. Right? You're like, you idiot. You mean prophets were not perfect people. They were not perfect people. We also see that they lived kind of on the fringe of society because the very ministry that they held kind of put them on the outskirts of people. John the Baptist, when he is described in the New Testament, uh, he wore the hides of animals, had a camel's belt, and he ate um, mm, locust. Mm, right? I mean, the whole way that it presents him is like, yeah, okay, he's odd. He's strange, but he was preaching and announcing the very Messiah was coming. So prophets did not point people to themselves. It was not about them, but prophets proclaimed God's righteousness and holiness to point to the one who would come and save God's people. You see, prophets were established as a role by God to preach righteousness to God's people. Not to preach the prevailing ideology of the day. Not to preach what would comfort the people or affirm them in their sin, but rather to preach righteousness and call the people to it. So God leads His people with these three spiritual roles. By the king, He models God's rule of His people. By the priest, He relates to God's people in worship. And by the prophet, He speaks God's righteousness to the people. And listen, God chose all of the people that fulfilled all of these roles in the Old Testament, but they were not perfect. They were not perfect. The leaders who fulfilled these spiritual roles throughout the Bible with out exception were imperfect people that God used for his purposes. Now you may not be tracking with me yet, but here's what I'm going. That's a hard pill to swallow. Why? We don't mind following a perfect person because we don't really have a choice. But man, when we see so blatantly the imperfections of another, Asking us to follow them in some way can just be overwhelming. It causes us to ask the question, why would God give such imperfect people to do His perfect work? Why would God use imperfect people for His perfect work? If they were all so wrong, then why were any of them still important? And what I want to provide for you is this. Three reasons why you need true spiritual leadership as God designed 
for your life. It's essential for life. Three reasons why spiritual leadership is essential for your life. And these are going to go fairly quickly, friends. The first one is this. Spiritual leadership is essential for a healthy relationship with God. Spiritual leadership is essential for a healthy relationship with God. God uses spiritual leaders not because they are perfect. We learn this from the beginning of Moses' life, right? I mean, he was imperfect from the first time God spoke to him. God burned a bush but didn't consume it and said, come near. And Moses said, I don't think I want to. And then when God said, go speak, he said, you know, you know I, got, I got this, this is this issue. And God said, I got that covered. So from the very beginning, we see the imperfection even of Moses. But none of these roles were intended by God to be ultimate, but rather to point to one who would come and who would perfectly fulfill each role. Listen, friends, spirituality that is absent of God's designed leadership is always idolatry. Idolatry. All of that list of names that I told you and add any number of them to it throughout history. You add them to Jesus or you substitute them for Jesus and it's nothing more, nothing less than idolatry. Idolatry. Spiritual leadership by God's design uses imperfect people but who point people to Jesus. Anyone that is imperfect may be used, but only the ones who point people to Jesus will be used. I would argue there are plenty that are even holding the pulpits of the evangelical Christian churches, so they claim, in our city, in our state, and in our world, who are not, by biblical standards, spiritual leaders. And I would simply say to you, You're responsible to know that and to hold the church accountable to that. The second reason you need spiritual leadership, it's essential for your life, is this. Spiritual leaders point to the one who is perfect in his rule, in his relationship, and in his righteousness, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Pastors and elders serve in much the same way as these roles in the Old Testament, but to point people to Jesus. Paul told the Thessalonians this in chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. He says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. That's why it says in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that elders are to be men of character first. First. You know what kind of men we proved. That means character must be tested so it can be approved and competency can be established from that character in the work. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you. What was that? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You see, spiritual leaders point to the one who is perfect in rule, in relationship and righteousness. That's Jesus. Friends, people walk more closely with Jesus when they follow his leaders that God's placed in their life. People walk continually away from Jesus when they pick and choose from among the myriad of what may be good but are always incomplete and usually incompetent spiritual voices in the world. And people look for the perfect leader. They look for the perfect pastor. They look for the perfect preacher. You know why we do that? Because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. That's why podcasting is so famous. That's why people claim their pastor lives 3,000 miles away. That's not by God's design. Don't look for a perfect leader. Follow the leader who is called by God and competent to point you to the only one who is perfect. Jesus. Jesus. The third reason you need a spiritual leader is this, that Jesus, he's the only true spiritual leader through which we know God. John 14, 6, Jesus says this, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Friends, on this third point, as the worship team returns, I want to make an argument for you today that I hope you'll buy in all the way to. And it's this, 
Jesus is the only perfect spiritual leader. And every imperfect spiritual leader should either point you to him only. Or you should let him have no voice in your life at all. Jesus is the true king who perfectly shows us the way to obey the father and rule. When we come to Revelation chapter 5, we see where Jesus is. When he ascended back into heaven, God seated him at his right hand and he sits upon the throne, enthroned, ready to rule in full glory, full righteousness, and full authority. And that's where Jesus sits today. He is with his people. But it causes us to have to ask ourselves, who rules your life? Who rules your life? Is it Jesus? Or is it some consortium of other spiritual voices that you've invited in? You can serve other kings, but you cannot know God's glory without King Jesus. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. He shines as the true king because he was the perfect Israelite. He was the true son of God. The true son of God. Jesus is not only the true king, he's the high priest who becomes life with God for those who, who trust in him. Hebrews 14, excuse me, Hebrews 4, verse 14 begins to tell us that, that Jesus served in the order of Melchizedek. That's important because he didn't come out of an order of priests that were imperfect. He came out of the line of priests that were eternal. Remember when Melchizedek appeared to Abraham in Genesis? Abraham knew that God was before him and he offered an offering out of worship for what God had done for him. And when Jesus taught in the temple, what did the people say? Man, we know that you are from God. You don't talk like the other religious leaders talk. You've got authority. Nicodemus, who's a a Pharisee of Pharisees, he comes to him in the night and he says, the Pharisees know your secrets. You're really God. We know. We're never going to admit it. But some of us secretly believe. Jesus is the true priest. He's not only the priest that meets you at the gate and says, why don't you come in? But he's the priest that said, oh, we don't need to stop at the altar. I've already been there. Hebrews tells us that, that once for all, he offered up his life. So that there would never have to be another sacrifice. There would not be a repeated death that Jesus would have to die. Once for all is all it took. And so Jesus says, let's get on past these trivialities of religion and ritual. Let's go to the back room where the Father awaits. And he brings you in and he says, Father, your child is with me. We are here to worship you. Uninhibited, unseparated. Jesus brings you into the presence of God. Friends, it causes us to ask, what source are you living from today? Where are you finding your life? Is it in your job? Is it in your bank account? Is it in your ability? In your intellect? In your friends? Your relational network? In your significant other? Where are you finding your identity and your source of life? What are you living from? can usually be revealed by what you're living for. Is Jesus your life today? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Jesus is the perfect prophet. Even Moses, the greatest prophet, said this, it ain't about me. But there will be one that comes who will be greater than me. What Moses promised, Jesus fulfills. And listen, friends, Jesus doesn't just adequately speak God's word. He is the word of God incarnate. And the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. Jesus is the prophet who embodies God's truth among his people. You see, Moses was was great, but Jesus is so much greater. Moses left the comfort of Egypt to go and serve the people, the Israelites. He could have stayed and enjoyed all of Pharaoh's luxuries, but God called him to go and endure all the rumblings of God's people. Jesus could have stayed in heaven, but rather, he didn't consider it something to be grasped. But he humbled himself and became obedient father and became a man and as a man he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of 
death. But God raised him up. Amen. Jesus, what more? What more do we need? What more could we conceive? There are many prophets who speak good words, but only God's authority is present with Jesus. And every true prophet points to the only one who is true. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Friends, what voice are you listening to today that's guiding, that's governing, that's influencing your life? Is it a voice of the world? Or is it the voice of God? Will you pray with me? God, our hearts are so prone to wonder. And today we may find ourselves that we've wandered far from you. There likely are those who are here today who are living far from you. Help us today to put our trust in Jesus, the only true king, the only true priest, the only true prophet who is perfect in every way, and to trust him and him alone. Friends, if you're here today and for the first time, you know that you want to turn from yourself and turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that. In just a moment, our people are going to begin to come to receive the elements of the Lord's Supper. And as they do, there will be an elder at the front of each aisle. We want to invite you to come and just say, I need to become a Christian today. I need to turn from my sin. And if you know God's leading you in that, we invite you to come. Let us help you and encourage you. Let us pray with you and celebrate with you. Christian, if you're here today, the Spirit of God is speaking to you. He's beckoning upon you to consider what word, what voice are you listening to? What source are you trying to live life out of? What rule or authority are you living under? And where the Spirit applies that in your life to circumstances or situations, to relationships, to thought patterns, to attitudes, to words, whatever the case may be, I want to encourage you right now to confess that. Agree with God and say, God, I know that is sin in my life. I confess and I want to repent. I want to turn away from that. I want to turn back and come home and come home. Will you do that today? Don't come take the elements of the Lord's Supper until you do. They'll do you no good. They'll do you no good. As the worship team leads us, you come as God moves among us.